Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Denwood, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples who give glory to our Lord Jesus Christ with every aspect of their lives. Our prayer is that this podcast will help us accomplish that end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful on your journey with Christ. Point to ponder December 4th, 1 John 5, 14. One of the verses from our passage from Sunday's message says, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. That's 1 John 3, 22. Wow, that is a rather broad statement, and it makes it sound like we get whatever we ask for from God. That's a pretty good deal. Understanding the Bible a bit better than that should keep us from falling into that ditch. I imagine the prosperity gospel folks feast on a verse like that as they manipulate, abuse, and take advantage of unsuspecting and immature Christians. There are, of course, other verses in the Bible that seem to make similar declarations about asking in prayer and getting whatever we ask for. How are we to rightly understand these texts? You might recall that Jesus was teaching his disciples about faith and told them that if they had faith in God, they could toss mountains into the sea simply by believing, without doubt, that God would do it. Mark 11, 22-23. Now, it is easy for me to tell you that Jesus did not mean that they could do such things literally. This is certainly a figure of speech to teach them that if they placed unwavering faith in God, that He would do amazing things through them by His unlimited power. That does not change the fact that He said what He said, and disciples like John wrote what they wrote, inspired by God to do so. I believe that an important and clarifying truth can be found in 1 John 5.14, where it is written, This is the confidence that we have before Him that, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. John wrote a similar statement in his gospel. He said, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's John 14, 13. The thread that connects these two passages together, and I believe that helps us rightly interpret any passage about answered prayer and faith, is the will of God and His glory. Nowhere in the Scriptures are we encouraged or taught to seek our own desires or will. We are taught to deny self, to take up the cross, and to seek to do the will of the Father. The idea that I can ask for anything I want and expect Jesus, or better, our genie, to perform His magic tricks at my beck and call is ridiculous and unbiblical. From our text Sunday, John said, Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. 1 John 3, b The way we get what we are asking for from God is to walk so intimately with Him that we come to not only know His heart to some degree, but we begin to desire what He desires. You see, dear ones, as we abide in Christ and He in us, and as we are led by the Spirit, the seed that is in us, and as the Word is applied to our hearts by the Spirit, we are transformed. As this happens, our desires, our priorities, and our requests are no longer about us, but about Him. We learn to pray boldly because we know that He loves us deeply, but always remembering that we are limited in our perspective and understanding and should therefore always submit our will to His. Our Father in Heaven loves us too much to give us everything we ask for, since He is busy sanctifying us, not pacifying us. Point to Ponder, December 5th, 2 Thessalonians 1, 
verses 11 and 12. Much of what John is writing about in 1 John is the reality that there will be evidence in a person's life indicating whether they are Christians or not. John wrote in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. He continues stating that it is by this proof that we know we are of the truth. Friends, I imagine that there are some who grow weary of hearing us say over and over again that it is important that you see fruit in your life, and if you do not, you should be concerned with your relationship with Christ. The idea that you can claim Jesus as your Savior even if you don't follow Him or obey Him is ludicrous. We desperately want you to know for sure that you are saved. The genuineness and authenticity of your faith matters far beyond you. When you claim to know Jesus as Lord and have God as your Father, it matters how you live. Grave damage is done to the cause of Christ by those who misrepresent Him in the eyes of others, especially the lost. We are to be salt and light, and if we have no Christ-like flavor to our lives and nothing but darkness in our behavior, we will have no gospel impact on those around us. This is terrible. Some people may reject Christ because they see such an awful picture of Him presented by those who claim to know Him. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians this beautiful prayer, To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. That's 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 11 and 12. It reminds me of what he wrote in his first letter to them concerning their work of faith. He said, We constantly bear in mind your work of faith and labor of love. That was 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Their work in faith was the result of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives and becomes assurance and reason for confidence in their own salvation and a great witness to others around them. John would absolutely agree with Paul's conviction regarding the importance and necessity of works of faith. He mentioned, as an example, how Christ laid down His life for us, demonstrating sacrificial love. In response to what Jesus did, we should, as His followers, be willing to give ourselves for the well-being of others too. As a matter of fact, John says that if we have the means or resources to help a brother or sister in need and fail to do so, we should question whether the love of God abides in us at all. It's 1 John 3, verses 16 and 17. This is no light matter, dear ones, and it is not to be reserved for the spiritual elite. The reason that we can expect to experience this love and faith in our own lives and in the lives of others who claim to be Christian is because it is a work and a love that is produced in us by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Our obedience is an indication that we have been born again by the Spirit. As we maintain faith, that becomes a conduit through which the Spirit's power flows that enables and prompts us to acts of love and works of faith. This is why John says if you can help a brother or sister and you simply don't have the heart to do it, that may well be because you don't have the love of God abiding in your heart by faith. Without saving faith, there is no works of faith, and thus no demonstrations of sacrificial love. Paul said in Galatians 5-6 that faith actually works through love. This is a big deal, church family. Point to Ponder, December 6, Genesis 4, 3-8. 
John reminds us in Sunday's message that the message has not changed from the beginning. It is still love one another, 1 John 3, 11. He immediately provides an example of what this love does not look like. In verse 12, he says, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Most of us probably know the tragic story of Genesis 4, where we learn that Cain killed his own brother Abel. He did it out of envy, jealousy, and mostly because he was simply evil. Moses records for us in Genesis 4 the story of the first murder in the Bible. We learn that it came on the heels of both young men offering sacrifices to God. Now, it must be understood that God does not tell us precisely why Cain's offering was unacceptable while Abel's was accepted. We learn from the book of Hebrews that, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. We also know that the blood sacrifice that Abel offered was effective and pleasing God and was only surpassed by the blood of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 12:24. I make that assumption because when the writer of Hebrews is talking about the preeminence of Christ in this regard, he uses Abel as a good example that Christ exceeded in value and efficacy. Beloved, please keep in mind that if God wanted us to have more information regarding Cain's offering, he would have provided it. Do not waste your time trying to figure out something that God did not see fit or necessary for us to know. What he did tell us is that something was wrong with it for some reason, but more likely something was wrong with Cain that made his offering unacceptable. One need not look any further than the moments after God's rejection of Cain's offering. Rather than Cain repenting and making his offering in accordance with God's expectations, he grew angry, bitter, hateful, and murderous. Why did Cain kill Abel? Abel had done nothing wrong, and he certainly had not done anything to or against Cain. Here you have one brother who was simply walking in love and obedience towards God and one who was not. Rather than Cain adjusting his behavior to God's will, as Abel had done, he further reveals the condition of his heart by killing his own brother. John makes it crystal clear as to why Cain slew Abel. He wrote, And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. 1 John 3.12 Folks, please understand that sometimes people dislike you, say hurtful things about you, and do all they can to pull you down, not because any of those things are true, but because they can't stand the light that shines from you upon the darkness in their own hearts. John tells us that we should not be surprised if the world hates us. He says that in light of the example of Cain and Abel, Abel was innocent and his brother, in sin and darkness, hated him for his innocence. Now, keep in mind that Cain brought a sacrificial offering to God. From this, we can surmise that he was hypocritical in his worship and was merely giving God lip service rather than love from his heart. John's point for us is that we must be sure that our demonstrations of love are not disingenuous. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? We can perform all sorts of acts without love, which ultimately profits us nothing. The point, dear ones, is that love must be genuine, and it can only be genuine when we are genuinely born again and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Faking it does not meet the requirements for the evidence that John is writing about that is intended to assure us and others of our salvation. Point to Ponder, December 7th, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. John made a statement in our passage from Sunday that was reminiscent of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. 
John said, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It was 1 John 3.15. Remember that earlier in 1 John 2.11, John wrote, But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. This language conveys the idea that it is habitual hatred, not just a moment of anger or loss of self-control. The point is that their habitual hate indicates that they have never been born again and are not filled by the Holy Spirit. Christ-like love is a byproduct of the Spirit at work in a believer's life. God's love for us changes our lives and impacts how we see other people. From a godly perspective, we begin to see them as fellow image-bearers and broken human beings in need of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. It becomes easier for us to be patient and kind because we have experienced those blessings from God ourselves. Those who walk in the light have been given the reasons and means to love others, and the Holy Spirit literally helps us to love them. Jesus said that we are to even love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. How in the world can we do that? In the moments we are mistreated, wronged, maligned, or persecuted, Remember that God is at work in the suffering and pain to transform us and to possibly reach the persecutor through your patience and gentleness in the face of their meanness. This can become a mighty testimony in your life that God may use to save others. When you interpret and handle your circumstances through faith and understanding God's sovereignty in your hardships, you can begin to see the people responsible as instruments in His hands for your good and it is easier to let go of the anger. It is even possible to love those who are hateful to you because you have the eyes and heart of God who causes you to see them with sadness for their condition, which can cause you to even pray for those who persecute you. It is a miracle of the Spirit at work in your heart. As we walk in His light, it becomes possible to live out His love. Now, I believe that John said that he who hates his brother is a murderer in light of the example of Cain's hatred and subsequent murder of his brother Abel. The murder that was committed began in his heart and mind as anger and then turned to hatred. John's point, as was the point that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount, was that to habitually hate someone is to carry in your heart the same sin that causes murder. The anger and hatred comes from the same sinful motive that led to murder. The only difference between murder and hate is the act. The attitude is the same. Remember that Jesus was far more concerned with the attitudes and motives of the heart than the external observance because the external could be nothing but legalistic hypocrisy. Friends, John wants us to ultimately understand that as we walk in the light of God's truth and His love, we do so by faith in His promises. As we learn to abide in Him, we are given the capacity to love. In other words, God teaches us how to love others. Our faith in God must be so real that the love that it produces in us proves the reality of the faith. We hear His truth, we abide in it, and we do so by faith that it is true. As we do this, we learn to love God, which in turn causes us to love others too. If you do not love others, God's love does not abide in you, which means you still abide in death. Point to ponder, December 8th, Galatians 5 and 6, James 2, 14 to 26. I feel like a broken record as I say this, but the truth is that genuine saving faith is effective and producing practical obedience to God. Remember that John described loving the brethren in terms of practical obedience. 
It was in verse 17 where he said that if you see another brother or sister in need and you fail to assist them where you can and in appropriate ways, you are not walking in the love of God. On the other hand, if you help them in practical ways where you can, you have done well and the love of God abides in you. We are called to love others in words and in deeds. James stated it similarly in his epistle when he wrote that if a brother or sister is hungry and all you do is say, go in peace without giving them something to eat, you have not done well. James 2 verses 15 and 16. In fact, James says that what you have done is useless. In other words, our love is to be demonstrated in tangible and practically helpful ways. The well-known statement that James makes next is, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. That's in verse 17 of James 2. Saving faith proves that it is genuine by works of love. Friends, the simple point here is akin to the person who says they read the Bible and do morning devotions, but never put into practice what they are reading or learning. It is like the person who has their head full of Bible knowledge and even knows doctrinal truths, but does nothing to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God. Useless. The simple truth is that the Holy Spirit, as God, is a change agent and has a transforming effect on those whom He indwells. Both John and James are teaching that works become the evidence and assurance that faith is real. Conversely, where there are no works, there is no faith. Where there is no faith, there is no salvation. Where there is no salvation, a person remains in darkness and abides in death. Let me take a moment to address briefly the possibility that one might see James and John's teaching as somehow contradictory to Paul's teaching concerning justification by faith alone. In Romans 4 verses 1 to 5, Paul makes it perfectly clear that we are saved by faith and not by works. He goes to great lengths to explain that Abraham and everyone else was saved not by keeping the law but by placing faith in God. In virtually all his letters, he labors to show how good works and love necessarily flow from real justifying faith. So, when Paul dealt with the abuse of his doctrine of justification by faith alone, he said, It's not added works like circumcision that will win God's favor. What then? It is faith working through love. Notice very carefully what he says. What counts with God? Faith. But what kind of faith? Faith that works through love. He does not say that what counts with God is faith plus a layer of loving works added to faith. He says that what counts with God is the kind of faith that by its nature produces love. But it is faith that gives us our right standing with God. The love that comes from it only shows that it is, in fact, real living, justifying faith. That is what James was trying to get across to his churches Loveless faith is absolutely useless, and anybody that comes along and says, we are justified by faith alone, and so you don't have to be a loving person to go to heaven, is not telling the truth, but a liar's, and the truth is not in them. I hope that you rest today recognizing the obvious presence of the Lord in your life, and that you are encouraged and confident that you belong to the Lord. Works and love are evidence, dear ones, and I hope there is plenty of it in your life today. Point to Ponder, December 9th, John 3.16, and 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. John reminds us in the text from Sunday that we know love, the kind that he is emphasizing, by the unparalleled demonstration of Christ's love for us in which he laid down his life to save ours. 
1 John 3.16. This is a high standard, but the standard nonetheless. Remember the truth that it is the Holy Spirit working in and through us that causes or enables us to be able to love like this. So, yes, the bar is high, but He does not leave us to our own devices to reach it. John 3.16 is certainly a familiar passage that describes the Father's love for us as well. There it is written, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I think the translation that says He loved the world in this way is helpful to see this sacrifice as a demonstration of His love. Paul's letter to the Philippians describes what this type of love looks like as well between believers and is modeled after Christ's love as well. In Philippians 2, 3-5, he writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Dear ones, we are to care about people and to serve them in such a way that they benefit from being in relationship with us. This is how Jesus loved people and sacrificed for their well-being, and we are encouraged to pattern our lives after His. Then there is the beautiful description of love provided for us in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. This chapter is affectionately referred to as the love chapter by many. Look at some of the attributes that would characterize our love for others. Paul writes that godly love is patient, kind, and is not envious or jealous. Love is not arrogant, does not brag, nor act rudely towards another. Christ-like love does not keep records of other people's wrongs and does not rejoice in things that are wrong, sinful, or untrue. The type of love that Jesus demonstrated rejoiced in truth and was enduring, hopeful, trusting, and lasting. O oh, church family, we can only imagine what the world would be like if this were true in the actions and lives of all of us. Maybe a better place for us to start is to wonder what our own lives and families will look like if we loved one another like this. What would the church look like if we cared for each other's well-being above our own and loved with these characteristics shaping our relationships with each other? You might think this is wishful thinking, and I suppose outside of the family of God it is. But within the body of Christ, it ought not be a pipe dream. It may seem out of reach, and it is for those who are not filled by the Holy Spirit and walking in light. I've said it over and over this week. This type of love is absolutely possible because it is the desire of God for us to love this way, and He will assist, even calls us to be able to. Beloved, as we end this point to ponder today, I think it would be a helpful reminder to focus on the love of the Lord demonstrated and extended into your life rather than trying to figure out how you can love this way. You will likely remain discouraged if all you do is look at yourself. Take your time today to consider His amazing love for you and let that truth and all its implications cause you to worship Him as you stand in awe of the depth of His love. I join with Paul today praying that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of His great love. It's Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. My hope is that this will cause you to overflow with His fullness and then love more easily the way He did and does. Point to Ponder, December 10th, Romans 8, 1. 
It never fails that when Pastor Aaron and I preach, there are precious saints in the congregation who feel more conviction than most, and much of it isn't necessary. Let me attempt to explain what I mean. Conviction is not a bad thing when the Holy Spirit is prompting it. However, it can be damaging and debilitating when it is applied from some other means. John said in our text from Sunday, And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. 1 John 3.20 This followed his discussion concerning evidences of true conversion. As I have written all week, the presence of Christ-like love in your heart and extended to others in both word and deed is clear reason to be confident in your salvation. John stated in verse 19, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. That is a wonderful truth. Now, even though this is true and it is written on the pages of Scripture, there are still those times when our hearts will seem to condemn us. This actually begins in a good place, but must be worked through the truth of Scripture in order to be handled correctly. All of us know that we are sinners and at times wonder if God could even love us in light of how we sometimes act and think. In those moments, the growing and sensitive Christian may be so ashamed of abiding sin in his or her heart that they feel an overwhelming sense of condemnation. When that happens... You must go back to Scripture to remind yourself of biblical truths. God knows that we are saints who still sin sometimes and loves us still. We know that we are not saved because of perfection in our performance, but rather grace that flows through faith in the finished work of Christ. Sometimes our hearts condemn us where God does not. John MacArthur said, A conscience focused on our failures smites us with the axe blows of guilt and hacks away at the tree of assurance. What are we supposed to do in those times? We must say, wait a minute, there is a higher court than my conscience. There is a higher standard than my heart. God is greater than my heart, and God knows all things. God has a higher standard of holiness than I do. God has a greater hatred of sin than I do. And God knows everything about me far more than even I do. This is where the beautiful truth of Romans 8.1 comes in. The Bible says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My heart may condemn me because I am thinking of my failures and sins from a human perspective, but the Bible tells me something different about redemption, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. You remember what Paul wrote just prior to the beautiful truth quoted above? He admitted that he was a wretched man hounded by a propensity to sin and a desire to be free from it. He then remembers a truth that we must hold on to as well, which leads us to remember there is indeed no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. In Romans 7.25, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul began to condemn himself and then overcame that by remembering what Jesus did and taking the condemnation that should have been his or ours upon himself. We are forgiven and we are free. I am so thankful that there is a greater judge and higher court than my own heart. He knows us, dear ones, because he knows all things and loves us still. John writes this epistle so that we can be confident of our salvation. Beloved, pursue holiness and righteousness. I hope that your sin will burden you when it happens, but see it in light of your love for the Lord and your sincere desire to please him in all things. Because we love him and belong to him, we should feel remorse when we grieve him. 
How marvelous is the truth that he loves us still and isn't finished with us yet.